may recall the story that Sylvia told about watching a news program of a doctor who was recounting holding, uh, I think it was a 10-year-old Syrian refugee girl who had died um, with tears in his eyes. And she was wearing, um, I think, a um, pink, sweatsuit. pink sweatsuit with a Mickey Mouse logo <clears throat> and some boots or shoes. White boots. White boots. And I was sitting there with tears in my eyes. because I knew that I was going to be going to uh, Lesbos in a couple of weeks uh, to try and help the refugees. So um, as we're sitting here today, right at this moment, I think it's about 8 o'clock in the evening in Turkey, and there are probably hundreds, maybe if not thousands, of refugees who are waiting on the shore, waiting to go on a boat or a raft uh, across five miles of the Aegean Sea uh, to one of the Greek islands. And they're waiting, and they've been waiting maybe for several days um, for the smugglers to put them on these boats or rafts. And I'm imagining um, what they're thinking right at this moment. Because they know that several thousands of refugees have died trying to cross that five miles of the sea. And many of them have been families with children uh, who have drowned. Um, because the smugglers will place um, in a, in a raft that holds maybe 20, they'll put 40 people in there. And so they don't know as they're sitting there or waiting in the cold and the dark if they're going to make it. And this is after traveling maybe thousands of miles from Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq. They've reached this point where just across they can see the Greek island so close, but yet so far. And they know if they can just get across for five miles, um, there will be safety. So I think about that a lot um, every day of what these people are going through, just to try and get to some safety. So last, um, around Thanksgiving, I was thinking a lot about the refugees because that was really at the height of the migration uh, to Europe. And I remember sitting down at the Thanksgiving dinner thinking, why am I so lucky? And why are other people suffering in this world? And as I read more about the refugees and went online and read the research and so on, researched the issue, I found that there are very few established organizations there to help the refugees. There are few from the United Nations and so on, but what has happened is just amazing. Hundreds and thousands of volunteers from all over the world have come to Lesbos, to Greece, for one week, for two weeks, three weeks, and there's no established organization. They're just these groups of volunteers who have banded together to try and do what they can uh, to help their fellow um, beings. For example, there's a group on Lesbos called the Dirty Girls of Lesbos. <laughs> and what they do is they collect all the wet clothes, because as soon as the refugees arrive, they're wet from being on this boat. So they take off the wet clothes and they give them dry clothes. Otherwise, they'll be suffering from hypothermia. And so they collect all the wet clothes that have been discarded, and then they wash them in a laundromat. And then they redistribute the dry clothes to be used by the next group of refugees. Just a small group of women and men 
the dirty girls of Lesbos. So there are hundreds of these people that are doing this, and if not for these people who are doing this, there would be a lot more deaths and suffering of the refugees. So I decided um, sometime after Christmas that I needed to do something, so I decided to go um, next in a couple of weeks for three weeks to do what I can. I might join the dirty girls of Lesbos. <laughs> so um, I started a fun um, campaign on an, a website called Go, um, GoFundMe.com, but it's not to fund me. I'm trying to raise funds for the refugees, and the funds that I'm raising will go directly, 100%, every penny will go toward the refugees. And so I have some flyers that I'm going to put in the back table when you leave. If you are interested in donating to this fund, there's a website, a link, my telephone number, my email address if you have any questions. Within 24 hours when I set up this fund, I was hoping for like $500 to raise. Within 24 hours, over 25 people uh, donated $2,000. So I'm up to about $3,500 now, and I'm trying to make a last push. Um, a number of my friends told me and thanked me for doing this because they said, we want to help, and I wanted to help the refugees, but I didn't know how. I don't want to just send my money to an organization because I don't know how it's going to be used, if it's going to go directly to the the intended audience, or is it going to be used for overhead or administration or whatever? So they really thank me that they know that these funds are going directly to help the refugees. So the last thing I just want to say is, um, or just a couple more things, is um, after I decided to go, someone reminded me that my grandfather, who's Korean, back in the 1930s, was a minister in Korea, and Korea was under the occupation of the Japanese at that time. And the Koreans, especially the Christian um, ministers and so on, were persecuted by the Japanese and forced to renounce their faith and worship the Shinto gods and so on. And my, f my grandfather took his seven children, including my father, and escaped to China at that time and went to Shanghai where I was born in 1948 in Shanghai while we were there. When I was one year old, baby, in 1949, this is when uh, China was involved in the civil war between the communists and the nationalists. And as the communists were advancing towards Shanghai, my father and his father and mother and their seven children escaped to Hong Kong. And within two months, Shanghai fell to the communists. So somewhere in my DNA, there's this urge or need or desire to help the refugees. And probably many of you have similar kinds of stories in your ancestry of people who had to leave a country to escape to freedom or to safety. Um, so I think all, many of you can understand where this impulse comes from. So the last thing I just want to say is I've been coming here, as Sylvia said, for about a year to the Monday night and to Wednesday mornings. And it uh, reminds me of a talk I heard Tara Brock give on, I think, on her website recently on generosity. She said that um, what Buddha said, the Buddha said was one of the first signs of an awakened heart and mind is generosity. And that made a lot of sense to me because as I've been practicing here, I felt the awakening of my heart and mind. And, and I think many of us have gone through the, the, the awakening, it leads to love, kindness, and compassion. And that compassion leads to generosity. I think it's just very natural. So I thank 
Sylvia and Donald and all the others here at Spirit Rock uh, for bringing about that change. And so this trip to Greece is, I think, a culmination or maybe the start um, of demonstrating that awakening of compassion and kindness. And a couple of weeks ago, Jack Cornfield and Monday night talked about love, and he talked about how we are all, all beings are interconnected. And when we re realize that, and we see people suffering, and we realize that we are all interconnected, then we have this impulse to be generous, to be compassionate, and to take action and help. So I'm going to leave these flyers in the back table as you leave. If you're, if you're so moved, please feel free to take one. If you would like to donate, um, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'll be happy to answer any questions. And when I return, I'll be happy to share my experiences. I am planning to set up a blog so I can write some of my impressions and experiences and some photographs, etc. Um, that you would be welcome to um, keep in touch that way. So thank you so much for this time. Billy, thank you very, very much, John. That blog, is it going to be while you're there? Yes. Would you send it to me? And uh, and then I'll tell people how to link to your blog. Yes. Because you know, if, if, if people want to donate, you'll definitely be on the blog automatically. That'd be one way to keep in touch. But others who want to, I have my email address on this flyer, and you can write to me. Can I have that flyer? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Why don't Why don't I look Look, John? This is this morning's paper. Why don't you just pass it around here so everybody can look at it? That's this morning's paper. Yeah, here's a here's a picture of these people waiting for these posts to arrive. Um, Quite a coincidence. Pass it around. <sighs> you know, I can't say for sure, John, but I had the feeling, uh, because I, I, I thought myself as you were talking, I wonder if I could do that. And then I thought, well, Probably younger and more healthy people ought to be. I mean, I'm healthy enough, but younger, more sturdy people uh, <coughs> should be doing that than I. But I wished I could be doing that. Uh, and I think that probably we all wished we could be doing that. And you, I mean, that... Uh, could you say John's link into the recording in case someone's listening and would like to... Oh, John's link into the recording, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, oh. Uh, da -da. www.gofundme, that's one word, gofundme.com and slash, forward slash, phng nine four as www.gofundme.com forward slash phng nine four as I, I i i i do have something i want to teach today but it's not different from what john was just talking about i'll just start it another way now that now that Now that John started, you know, I feel, uh, here's a way to start. As you were listening to him and as this picture comes around and you look at it, uh, I think that you probably feel moved and saddened as I do. And one of the things that John said about how many people have in their DNA ancestry people who fled. Raise your hand if you have in your DNA people who fled. It's really not unusual to have that. Um, 
even now when you think about people fleeing all over the globe from place A to place B because they're not welcome in place A, whether it's in Guatemala or in Mexico or Syria or any place where people are fleeing. You know, I've been thinking about the fact that um, on the one hand, uh, when John mentioned that uh, Jack had been talking about love, uh, I think a lot about the, uh, the natural instinct to love kin. And I find that often I'm saying things like, uh, if we could just move from our kin that we recognize to the kin that we don't recognize, we could have a different world immediately. Uh, <coughs> but it's also wired in us to recognize otherness, however we perceive it, or however we've been trained to perceive it or taught to perceive it. I am very heartened by what I see on the one hand as a, a, a changing in the visible diversity of this country. I really, um, I see it especially, I don't watch much television and I, I, I'm really, really staying away from cable news because I, uh, I'm taking that fifth precept very, very uh, seriously. The fifth precept is I, I, I undertake the vow to avoid intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Because on either side of the political spectrum, if I watch a, so to speak, news program, it's, um, it's jangling on the nerves. It's auditorily, auditorily jangling on the nerves. And, but I do turn on the television because my granddaughter and I enjoy watching cooking programs. That is, uh, you know, confession. We like all that you have 30 minutes to prepare an eight-course dinner, you know, <laughs> out of unknown ingredients <laughs> that you've never seen before <laughs> and don't know what to do with. Ready, set, go. I, we enjoy that. They're a little tense, but they're very remarkable. So I do get to see ads, and what I feel, do you see it as well? I feel like the ads are starting to be, are starting to recognize diversity in our culture. And more and more I see people playing together who are mixed ethnicities, and couples being together who are different ethnicities. And I think this is, this is, the, this is what the people growing up are going to be visually more and more used to. And maybe if the planet doesn't go underwater, if we stay around a few more generations, it won't startle us to have visible differences or invisible differences. We'll realize that fundamentally we're people, everybody, everybody suffers. I've also been thinking a lot, the two words that I wanted to talk about today were the words poise, which I already brought up a little bit this morning. And, uh, and the word compassion again. I want to talk about, um, I like the word poise. I'm using it more and more to talk about the combination of those three pieces of the Eightfold Path that are the mind training. So for those people who are not so conversant with the idea of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha taught as a sum of his uh, teachings, that the mind is malleable, it can be trained, it can do, it can learn different habits. How many people, by the way, were here on Sunday when we had the all day with uh, Cliff and Barbara? Not so many people. <laughs> Brahmini was here because Brahmini taught with me. Brahmini was leading uh, mindful movement sessions in the middle. It was a really wonderful day in which I taught about how I think the mind changes from its habits that don't create um, peacefulness and contentment in the mind to habits that do create peacefulness and contentment in the mind. And those, uh, those uh, uh, 
virtues of the heart that John mentioned, like love and compassion and generosity, which are all part of the ten virtues that the Buddha pointed out one trained when one undertook this kind of mind training. All of them seem to point to me to a, a kind of reorienting the mind from what I need to what does everybody around me need. And as soon as we do that, we really are released from the pain of self-preoccupation and what isn't going well with my life to the extraordinariness of external preoccupation. Look what's going on outside. I was very touched by everyone who shared final words of people uh, this morning. I said, it's perfect and it's beautiful. And I heard uh, earlier on my way over that somebody else said, uh, you know, that it's easy leaving this world. Uh, my father, who's uh, died 30 years ago, was in and out of coma at the end of his life, and he'd open his eyes, and, and, he, and he'd, been, he'd seem like his breathing got very labored, and I'd be uh, right there, and I'd talk to him, and I'd say, Dad, this is okay. You, everyone loved you. You did a great job. You, could, you can let go now. I said all the right things that we had by that time learned how to say to people. And at one point, he opened his eyes and looked at me. I, th I thought he was really about to not open his eyes anymore. And he opened his eyes and he looked at me and he said, you know, it's not that much of a deal. <laughs> Actually, I take a lot of courage from that. That yeah. seems very nice. You, know, you just do it. It's not that much of a deal. My father was a consummate understater, you know. It's not that much of a deal. <laughs> so I stopped with all of my advice. <laughs> and he died. <laughs> Maybe I was annoying him. <laughs> My intent was good. <laughs> but poise in the mind to be able to take what's going and what's, what's, what's happening all the time. Even as I gave the instructions in the beginning of this last hour, I was thinking about how all day long we make little adjustments, you know, that uh, we hear, we something comes up, I want to think of something more real than, um, well, this is more real. I, I, I was thinking about, I got, I got two pieces of mail yesterday that I wanted to tell you about. I, actually, another one, but I'm not sure I brought it. And I, I left it to read this morning. I get up very early in the morning, so I got up really very early. I was reading uh, the magazine published by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Does anybody get that magazine? I've, it's an extraordinary magazine, and it's an extraordinary, extraordinary organization, which I read this whole thing this morning, and I sent in um, a donation this morning because I thought to myself, what am I going to do? I read it, and it's so dismaying about the rise, a year of hate and extremism. And I'm sorry to show you that on all these little pictures of different hate and extremism, and it has a picture of Mr. Trump in the middle of it. Yeah. And um, somehow they said it, and it, I think it's true. And uh, it doesn't seem, it just seems like true, not, not vicious or caricatured, it just seems like true. Um, and in this is uh, are a couple of pages of hate organizations in the United States by state, how many there are. California is not first in the number of hate organizations. There are 55 registered hate organizations in, in, in California. Uh, but they have uh, anti... LGBT, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, Holocaust deniers, um, uh, racist, uh, radical traditional Catholic, and other. 55 in California, 54 in Texas. Maybe California has the most hate organizations. Sorry to see that. 
That looks like it's true. No, 60 in Pennsylvania. And that's a little state. The one with the least is uh, Vermont. No, North Dakota, but they have less people in North Dakota, too. Uh, and all those different kinds of hate, that you could be mad at this or that or that or that. Um, the year of hate and extremism. The number of hate and anti-government patriot groups grew last year, and terrorist attacks and radical plots proliferated. You know, I think sometimes when I read this, so well, the story I was going to tell you, or the realization I was going to tell you, is I got up this morning, I got up very early, I made my coffee, I sat a little bit, and I said, okay, now I'm going to re renew, renew, review my notes that I made for what I'm going to teach, and I'm just going to see yesterday's mail. So I, I read this, and I realized that my mind became so slumped, and so really um, depressed and... Um, I don't know, angry, but I don't know. Maybe angry, maybe angry. I didn't feel, but I didn't feel energized. Sometimes you feel angry, you feel energized. Just felt, ugh. Then I read about, uh, I said, okay, we have enough of that. I began to see the truth. One of my teachers taught me that whatever the mind, oh, the Buddha. The Buddha said, whatever the mind, the Buddha said, whatever the mind focuses on, whatever it ponders, by that is it shaped. So if I'm reading about all the things that people can hate and what they say, one of the, one, several of the articles here were unreadable out loud. I read them and I was so appalled with the kind of postings that people put on, on the internet that I wouldn't read them. They are way too vulgar and vile. And I thought, people are putting this on the internet and other people are seeing it, you know. I mean, I, you know, I also get magazines from the ACLU who would support, I suppose, their right to do it. But it's a terrible thing, I think. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, then I read uh, the Smithsonian. And I just happened to read uh, uh, an article apropos of people fleeing, uh, fleeing from the places they're fleeing from. Uh, families in Oklahoma about a family in Oklahoma who fled in, uh, uh, in the time of Vietnamese arrival uh, on boats Miss, uh, and, uh, and how they made a new life and how this particular person, uh, this really reminded me of the American dream where a family can come and establish themselves in a community that welcomes them and goes to work. And somebody said, my parents... Uh, somebody said at some point uh, 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 whose, whose family had now 40 years later really established themselves and uh, that have enormous, they went from a tiny little market to huge uh, Asian markets in this one in, in, in somewhere in uh, I don't know, Oklahoma whether it's Tulsa or not sure but very large not Tulsa Oh. Anyway, in Oklahoma, there are tremendous business in, uh, in a very big supermarket and uh, restaurants. And said, my mother is still in charge of the production, this person is saying. My mother is now old. She said, my mother has been in charge of produce all, the, all these years. And she said, not working is not in our parents' DNA. So they're talking about hard work, and I was thinking, this is the America that we used to, that we grew up thinking existed, where people could come here. Like all four of my grandparents were illiterate, always, all of their life, in, in any language they spoke, uh, they spoke Yiddish well and English, somewhat, but they didn't read or write in any languages, and their children did, and I do. And and were and were able to make it in this country, and I, so I I was reading this and then I felt good about it at the end of reading it and I thought look at that that I could learn something about it's good I read this it should it's good it came because here are people vilifying other people and here's a story of when people aren't vilified and they're made to feel safe 
how they could flourish. So it's really two abstract and, you know, two different kinds of articles arbitrarily. But I noticed that I felt better after I read the second article. And if I'm going to take away a Dharma takeaway from that, it's you have to make the screen big enough to know what else is true. This is true, and this is true. The story about all people, you know, people are given their own, the story that people are given their own power, use it badly against other people, some people do. Other people don't. I, I, uh, the people who have been coming a long time and know me well, I am not going to launch into the two stories of somebody while I was traveling in Europe said to me, I'll help you, madam, and they actually did. And another person said, I'll help you, madam, and pickpocketed me and took my passport at the same time. So in between those two events where the same phrase, je vous aide, madame, introduced it, the first one happened and someone actually helped me in a very nice way, which I remember till now. And for a year, I went around teaching that event and talking about how it buoyed up my heart so much and I felt so good from it and inspired and see that people are actually good and when they realize you have some need, they don't even ask you, they just go ahead and help you. I talked about that for a year before I was uh, in another situation where someone says, je vous aide, madame, and took my passport, my money, and everything else. So uh, I realized that I had made the the mistake that I think minds make all the time, where something happens and there's a certain end to it, and then we think, oh, this is what's true, people are good. And then we have this other event, people, people help you. Then, no, no, people take advantage of you. What, so that what I, this is true, some people are very helpful, some people take advantage of you. And the answer, and the end, the, the uh, correct end of the sentence, people are, is people are all kinds of ways, depending on different circumstances. And some people turn out in way one, and some people turn out in way two. And I hope, I, I think you'll notice that I just didn't say some people are bad and some people are good. They're different ways. Some people are way one and some people are way two. And the people that I know and that I really most admire are the people who are able to say, you know, everybody's the way they are because of what happened to them and their circumstances and their DNA and how they grew up and everything else about them. The, the stories that we admire tremendously, I probably the one that comes to mind immediately is uh, Nelson Mandela befriending his jailers, that uh, thinking about you have a choice always in your life, not always, but because Nelson Mandela had his circumstances and his DNA and his parents, and then he came out the way he was. I think we tell those stories as much as we do, because, as much as I hope we do, who knows how much we do, not enough probably, I don't know that either. My friends who are Zen teachers are very good correctives for me because the Zen people are very, you know, that it, it is what it is, Sylvia. Just, you know, don't... Uh. <laughs> yeah, Vicki. Um, I've contributed to the Southern Poverty Law Center since shortly after its inception, I think. So the intelligence report comes to my mailbox and I've come to regard it as kind of a barometer of how sturdy <laughs> I am at that time, whether, whether I'm going to open it yeah. or not. And um, so sometimes it sits and eventually goes to the recycling, and sometimes I do open it and, um, and have that, <laughs> that heart-sinking kind of feeling. But what I've come to count on that I really appreciate is the very existence of the organization that can be relied upon, and the influx of young attorneys that, that pursue, that investigate and prosecute um, to the best of, the, of their resources. And so. You know, that, just that you say that, I, I will add to that. I also have been getting it in the mail forever, and complete candor requires me to say that in the barrage of stuff that comes, a lot of times it just moves through 
and doesn't make a big response about me. Okay, this is Morris Dees again with the Southern Poverty, it, along with many other worthwhile. But this morning I read it, and I thought, whoa. And so we went immediately and sent them a donation. Uh, I don't know what we can do. I, I'll send John a donation because I can't single-handedly, but maybe I can pay for a whole lot of laundromat washes, you know, that, uh, or new boots or sweatsuits or somebody, you know, that um, it isn't all we can do, but I mean, we can also vote. We can also write articles for the op-ed or do whatever we do. But that the, the personal practice, I think, for myself is, um, is to notice, for instance, when I read this first one this morning, my heart is sinking, that's enough of that. I did not read certain of the articles because I knew this was not going in a good way because I really do want to come in a more or less cheerful mood. I didn't think I was cheerful enough last week because I can't. <laughs> but uh, all right, so you have to watch what you read, like yeah, monitor. There's, a, there's some famous quote from the Buddha about monitor the mind because thoughts give birth to words, which give birth, birth give birth to actions. Something isn't that something like oh, a, a quote from the Buddha that uh, you really could easily say something that you regret, or and if the mind isn't balanced, you can do that. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, the, the the those three parts of poise. That poise is balanced, but it's also alert. Uh, I go to an exercise class where we spend a lot of time, uh, not a lot of time, but considerable time, standing on one foot or another. It's a good exercise for old people. Uh, to, because you, your balance gets not so good. Uh, so you stand on one leg, then you stand on the other leg. But that, that sort of strength in the leg that you're standing on because that you need that. And you need a wide balance. And I think there's a, there's a corollary because I need my mind to be strong so it's not turning away completely. And I need it to see what's true. And I need it to see also that it's not the only thing that's true. The same time I'm reading about these hate groups, it's horrifying to read about. I'm reminded by Vicky of the numbers of lawyers that go to law school and able to be, in order to enable them to be attorneys for that group. And I think it's so important for me to, for all of us, certainly for me, not to, uh, maybe cheerful was the wrong word that I used before because I'm not cheerful about the hate groups, but to not become embittered, that's a better word. Whatever is the opposite of unembittered. Unembittered. That's the opposite of embittered. <laughs> to stay in love with the world. To stay. It's still a magic place. It's still a place where most people will be, I think most people will be moved by a photo of a child dead on the shore because he's fallen overboard from a, from a boat. One of the uh, stories that I think is true, you know, sometimes stories get told through generations. My, my father-in-law uh, came to the United States at 15 or 16 from Ukraine, and uh, he was one of many children of poor people. But he was talking about uh, his mother at one point, and he said uh, she was a good person that in the war that had just ended in Europe, enemy troops had come through that portion of Ukraine and that soldiers were bivouacked in the homes of the people who lived there. So these are peasant people. They have maybe two rooms or something. But he said, uh, so there were um, enemy soldiers sleeping on the floor of the living room. And he said, my mother... Uh, cared for them and fed them, looked out for them, because she said, you know, they were some mother's children. And uh, I, th I thought that was an amazing thing for someone to say, you've got enemy troops sleeping in your living room. Say, it's some mother's children. 
I told the story on Sunday, which I'll tell you now, just because it popped up into my mind. I hadn't told it in a lot of years. But it's that reversal of the mind where here is your enemy and you think it's some mother's child. Uh, I was coming home from France and I bought a lot of bottles of different flavored salt. You know, that salt is now very in, like uh, <laughs> as a spice you can get. So especially in the south of France where they have a lot of salt businesses going on. You can get pink salt from the Camargue and gray salt from someplace else and uh, basil flavored salt and Provence flavored salt. And you get it in the supermarket actually, so it's quite a not, it's not an expensive present to bring home. But I thought of eight or ten friends I had that I thought, oh, they'll be so pleased. I'll bring them a bottle of salt from the south of France. I buy all the salt. I'm traveling with a carry-on bag because, and I, I thought the salt will be great because I can take 10 gifts and, and just tuck them around the corners of my suitcase. I'll unzip, I'll put them in. Good, I do that. I come through Charles de Gaulle, and it must have been a day of extremely high alert because there were a lot of lines and a lot of security and a lot of tight pushing down this line, that line, this line, that line, on the shoes, off the shoes. I come finally to the gate, and I find to my dismay that there's yet another bank of uh, inspectors there. So I think, first of all, the fact that the, there's been so many inspections make you a little nervous about what's really going on today is something I don't know about. And also the, the airports in Europe are full of armed soldiers, so people walking around with very serious-looking machine guns walking around. So here I am in that yet another bank of inspectors, and I, feel, uh, I put my suitcase, I open it, it's a young man who's looking in it, and uh, he, feeling around, and he puts his hand, takes out a bottle, and he says to me, I speak French, says to me, what's this? I say, it's salt, right? it's a present for friends. And he looks at it. And he looks over there to his supervisor, and he waves to the supervisor, and he's pointing here to the salt. And the supervisor says like this, you know? And he's pointing over here, put it in that receptacle where they're collecting contraband, you know, to put it in there. So then he's systematically going around, oh, here's another one, so supervisor, and put it in here. And I'm, yeah, so I can hear, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Finally, he's got methodically working his way around. He's got all my salts. I see them down there, There's all this salt. So I say to him, listen, this is very good salt. Why don't you take it home for your mother? She, she might enjoy having the salt. Someone could use it. So he looks at me and said, I can't do that, madam. So and he's still, and I said, I don't know what prompted me to say, I said, do you enjoy your job? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, uh, I don't know if this is exactly the words. He said, Madame, uh, do I look like the kind of person who enjoys taking salt away from little old ladies? <laughs> I don't remember what phrase he used for little old ladies, but something that meant that. And the thing is, I didn't think that he was the kind of guy that enjoyed doing that. And in that moment, maybe because I had the previous sentence said, why don't you take this home to your mother? In my mind, he went from being, I think, I'm adding this in, and I, maybe it's not true, but I thought that maybe my mind had the connection, you take this home for your mother. And then I realized, he's a guy with a mother, you know. He's not my adversary. He's not my enemy. He's not doing this because he doesn't like me. He's just a guy doing his job, and he's got a mother somewhere. Anyway, but whatever, my all my on him, what's he doing, this young guy, look what he's doing. It all went away in one second. And I felt completely, I felt actually a moment of compassion for him, a moment of genuine compassion. I realized this guy has to stand there all day and rummage in people's, strange people's worn laundry. Because that's why when you're going home, your suitcase is full of laundry that you didn't do at the last minute, and your pharmaceuticals and all of that stuff. 
and he's got to rummage in people's private stuff all day long. That's not a great job, and he probably doesn't have a great future in it. And he's a young guy, probably not tremendously happy there. I, on the other hand, I think about it. I'm a tourist going through, I'm going home, I can do without the salt, I can go buy more salt when I get home. It doesn't matter. And I just, I suddenly was divested of all of my acrimony in my mind. And the fact of that caused me to sit down and look around and see all those people in the boarding lounge who I hadn't seen before. Because all I had seen is my discomfort pulling the suitcase through the airport, more inspections, my problem, I'd gone shopping, now they're taking it away. All of a sudden you see people traveling like me, all of them tired probably. And instead of sitting there and thinking about what he just did, I sat there and I thought about all the people in the boarding lounge. And I actually thought about, you know, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you have a good flight, may you get there well. I always think about Joe when I'm thinking about that, who said uh, when I was teaching about think about neutral people. And I said, uh, there are no neutral people because once you look at a person, they're either nice, you either like them or you don't like them, just we make snap decisions. And Joe said, no, no, no. She said, when I stand in front of a plane with 300 people on it and I say, fasten your seatbelts, I mean it the same for everybody. I don't mean some people should fasten more than other people. Everybody should fasten and everybody should come there safe. And that's been the best teaching. I teach that all over the place, Joe, because you know, it's such a relief not to have to decide, well, you really get there safely. You somewhat less safely. You, I don't care if you get there safely. First of all, if you think about it, if you think about it rationally, everybody has to get there safely. But that's true with the world. If the world becomes befouled with its own, uh, with its by its own hand, we will all not be able to breathe. And really, we have to fasten the communal seatbelt, and for which we have to not put anybody out of our heart. And it's extremely, it's in a certain way, easier to say those are the bad guys. Like, here are the bad guys. But to be able to say, these are the guys that I want not to be in control, because I don't think their ideas are good for the world. But I don't have to harbor hate in my heart. I think what we're really trying to do with this mind of poise is to not have any um, uh, not make anybody our enemies. That's the word I was thinking of. The first line of a very important metta chant, loving-kindness chant, is, may I be free of enmity and danger. And really, when I first heard about it, I thought, well, this is an arcane phrase. May I, enmity we don't say so much, um, uh, and danger. And I thought for a while, I think I did anyway, 30 or 40 years ago, that uh, it meant, may I be free from enemies coming after me and putting me in danger. I think I thought, may have thought that because in the folklore about the Buddha teaching, the metta teaching, the loving-kindness teaching, it says uh, that, this, that the Buddha taught this to monks who were, who were going out to be by themselves and sit in, uh, sit in jungles by themselves where there were scorpions and tigers and things to be afraid of, snakes. And the idea was that it would uh, protect you if you did this loving-kindness practice. If you radiated love out of you, the scorpions would leave you alone. One of the phrases in the metta... Uh, lexicon of what will be good for you if you practice metta. People will practice metta, wake peacefully, sleep peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them, angels love them, angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So it sounds like you are invulnerable, and it sounds like this is going to protect you against the scorpions and the beasts of the night and all of that. I think it's a poem. I think it's a, I think it's a lovely piece of uh, 
folklore. I think it means that what you can do is you can take care that your heart is not vulnerable, but that your heart is really so completely committed to kindness and to love that you're not afraid of anything. I have a friend who, uh, actually was my friend Joseph Goldstein, who's a major teacher, who told the story when he first heard that he was doing some walking meditation and a, and a dog down the street came out barking at him and he radiated love towards the dog and the dog bit him. <laughs> so, uh, so that you really do not have to, you don't have to take it literally. I would not advise you doing poisons and weapons and fire. I think it's a metaphor for that your heart stays happy. If I could, you know, if I could end my life saying, it's wonderful, thank you very much, I have no complaints. I think it was Maureen Stewart who said that. But all the people, you know, what a pleasure, you know, this is easy, I can do that. Even my father says it's not that big of a deal. It means don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And I think the, that what I was learning from Cliff over the weekend from his teaching about uh, his work at uh, uh, over the last 20 years of research in mindfulness uh, has been to really supervise a, a variety of uh, research projects about the effects of mindfulness, but also to study uh, the breadth of the mindfulness research. In, in, in a sense, he's the researcher's researcher about who discovered what and what's uh, what's true and what's not true. The name of his talk on Sunday was uh, The Baby in the Bathwater. And it had to do, it comes, that name comes, of course, from the, the rubric, Don't Throw Out the Baby with the Bathwater, that, uh, that uh, he said, that he started out by saying there have been so many uh, studies about what mindfulness does. Mindfulness has become like a, uh, magic panacea, mindful gardening, mindful tennis, mindful, um, and maybe mindful gardening is makes a nicer garden, but does it make a nicer person? Or you know that that really the the great depth of the Buddha's teaching uh, doesn't mean getting the job done well. It means, or the job that needs to be done well is the transformation of the heart to a loving response. That's the job. So that mindful anything, like it's a good idea. Mindful tennis, mindful skiing means be alert so that you won't hurt yourself. But the real word, meaning of the word mindfulness, and I, I meant it to clarify it earlier when I was talking about a, a Sarabande where you go da da da, and you're poised here like where am I going next? Like where am I going next? Like, how frequently can you relate in your experience something that happened to you in the last week? Think about where you were just about to say something to somebody and you didn't. Can you remember? Think a minute. Your partner, your children, your parent, your sibling. Start with the partner. Uh, Irene. I have a different kind of story about using uh, what I've learned here. Uh, I was evacuated from an airplane on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> uh, I was in Tucson, and there was fire in the cabin, and we had to turn around and land. And it all happened... This with, is while flying. While flying. This happened. We took off, uh, leaned back in our seat, 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, I'm thinking, okay, the plane's hot, only an hour to L.A., where I didn't want to change planes anyway, but that's a whole... I don't want to spend an hour talking about it. But here's where the... Uh, teachings came in for me. Thankfully, it all happened quickly because uh, by the time we got in the air, uh, the smoke was there. And then people started yelling, smoke, smoke, smoke. And then the stewardess said, we're going to turn around and go back. And then the stewardess said, it's only two minutes. And so there wasn't much time to sit there and muse about or agonize. But what I, what I had learned was 
I'll, I'll use your word today, can I stay poised? And I kept my mind to what do I do right now? What do I do next? And that included, oh my God, am I gonna go down a slide? Okay, Irene, you can go down a slide. The next step was, oh my God, it's the wing. There's not even a slide. <laughs> and the next step was, okay, what do you wanna do now, Irene? And I got out of everybody's way. And then the next step was, well, how the hell am I supposed to get off this wing? And then I thought, okay, stay poised. And two gentlemen helped me off the wing. And then the next step was get away from the airplane. And I went over to the tarmac. And so that was the moment to moment that I have learned to do here, to not go into the drama of the situation. But the reality was, that I don't think I felt really scared. I think I felt like, and I'll simplify it, it is what it is. Listen, Irene, first of all, we'll all pause for a minute and take a breath. That's an amazing story. <laughs> all those in favor of that was an amazing story. Yeah. Well, okay. well, when I got, I, and, and, and of course this is a great story to tell, but, and I could talk for an hour about it, but I, I got home and I thought, I'm, and then you're over it. Then I'm on the Marin Airporter going, these people have no idea. They're going home to watch the Super Bowl, yeah. you know? And so I, I get home and I thought, okay, you're safe. You know, I almost put on my Spamalot shirt that says I'm not dead yet, but anyway. Uh, then I, uh, the next morning I thought, okay, you're going to just get your coffee and meditate a little bit, watch the news, and I, and you're not going to, you know, you can deal with this, but first of all, you're going to relax. So I turned on the morning news like I normally do, and there was the headlines, Tucson smoking cabin, people, you know, evacuated. And I went, oh, my God. This is <laughs> so uh, it was a real, I, I really was grateful that I don't think I could have handled it as well. I saw people who were very scared, very shook up. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm also older. I don't have children at home, you know. But it was, I kind of think I had to use everything I learned here. <laughs> well, it's very reassuring that when you use everything that you learned, it worked. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. The other and thing, not perfectly. So, Irene, I, I just wanted to know, did that, did that <laughs> oxygen mask fall? Oh, no. No. They, I, I will tell you, I, I can tell you, they don't drop oxygen masks when there's smoke because they think the oxygen will fuel the fire. Ah. Who knew? I can tell you so much. You want to know how you, anyway. Wow. Wow. Well, first of all, very little to say after that, but I, except I have a tremendous. I'm first of all, I'm, I'm glad you told us about. It. I'm very glad nothing happened to you or anybody else dire there. It's very wonderful to hear. Really, when the chips are down, that's what the mind does. I'm also thinking about one of the things that happens um, when I hear or I see a thing like that, especially. If tomorrow I had tickets to Tucson or something like that, you think, oh, what about it? I could have been on that plane. And I think to myself, we could, every time we get on a plane, every time we cross the street, every time we go any place, you know, you drive out of your driveway, you actually don't know that you're coming home. Every time you say to people, I'll see you later, it's a guess. We might or might not. And I keep thinking to myself, if, if I remember, Every time I get home, I have three flights of stairs to go up to my house, so it's 30, flights, 30 steps. And I like to see that I can go with two bags of groceries and walk up the 30 steps and not be out of breath. And I, every time I do that, I do it as a practice, every time I do it, I think, still doing it. Not gonna be doing it forever. But I wanna be there for the last time I'm doing it. You know, that it's, or at least I wanna be grateful in this moment that I'm doing it, it's a big deal grateful that you got out of that thing. You climbed down off the wing. 
And I think it goes back to what John said about generosity. In any moment that I am grateful for my life, I, I notice there's a world out there that I'm grateful to be alive in, and my generosity and my compassion and my everything is more available. It all comes down to those four things. So I'm very glad that you're here well. Anybody who didn't sign Donald's card can come and put their initials on it or sign if they want to. Uh, uh, Heidi will be here next week, and she's so looking forward to being here. She loves to be here, and she's very lovely. So, uh, And she's not here more often because she lives up in Arcata, but she's coming down to teach next week. And then I will be back for three weeks after that because the whole month of March, Donald is sitting so I'm happy about that. It's good for him. And I'm glad that you signed that for him. So may all beings everywhere take care of each other. And I'll see you on the 9th. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.